When I deliver a keynote, I go over the eight laws of trust and the six components of my relative trust model. And then I bring up seven insights from them. These insights are sometimes counterintuitive, maybe even surprising and different from what you knew about trust. In this episode, I will cover those seven insights. I brought them up in previous episodes, uh, but <laughs> let's face it, with more than two years and 100 episodes in this podcast, I talked about those insights long ago, and it's time to bring them up all in one episode. And this happens today, right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Without further ado, let's start with insight number one. Insight number one, trust turns a group of creative and productive individuals into a creative and productive team. In my PhD research, uh, I was trying to find out, if, if you remember, my, the question that I was trying to answer is, why are people so much more creative in small startup companies than in large mature companies? It all boils down to a culture of innovation. But when I started breaking down what is that culture of innovation, one of the strongest components was something that I called team dynamics. What I found in my statistical research after all the interviews was that there was a 42.5% correlation between team dynamics, the dynamics within the team, and creativity and productivity of that team. Now, when you put people in a team, uh, you may have the most brilliant people in that team. And I'm, I'm talking technically, professionally speaking. You may have all the talent that you need, all the skills that you need, all the knowledge, the experience that you need individually in different people. So you would have one plus one plus one plus one, uh, however people, many people you have in the team. But what does this add up to if they don't know how to work with each other? And as I was breaking this down further and further, I came down to one component that was really the, the core of team dynamics, and that's the ability to hold a constructive disagreement. You know, just to make it clear, the two alternatives to constructive disagreement are the destructive disagreement. And this is where everything becomes personal, everything becomes emotional and irrational. Um, we attack people, we don't attack ideas. That, that's, as you can imagine, that's not creative. That's not a productive team. The flip side of it, by the way, is what I call the politically correct disagreement. This is when you have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. This is where things get, get agreed outside of the, the meeting room. This is when we're afraid to ask stupid questions, you know, suggest stupid ideas. And so... 
constructive disagreement is key, is core to having team dynamics where one plus one plus one do not equal two, but they actually equal five. That's when we start building on each other's ideas. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I took part in a constructive team or, or a team with constructive disagreement that was able to bring constructive disagreement. I brought up ideas that I knew were stupid to start with, but somebody found the gem in them and we were building on that because we could hold a constructive disagreement. Now, one of the questions I asked in, in a survey that, survey that I did in 2018 was, um, what are your thoughts about, or, or what do you feel about disagreement within the team? And I gave five options. One of them was, I think that disagreement is unproductive. I don't feel comfortable disagreeing. I avoid disagreements altogether. Those are the three negative attitudes. And two positive attitudes are, we can disagree, but it's not personal. We can passionately disagree and remain friends. And I separate here passion from emotional. Uh, so you can have a passionate disagreement. It's not an emotional disagreement. Emotional is irrational, too. So I asked that question, and, you know, I asked that in teams or, or participants that reported low trust and participants that reported high trust. Here's what I found. The answer to the question, uh, what do you feel about disagreement? The three answers, the three negative answers, it's unproductive, I don't feel comfortable, I avoid disagreement, we're 10 times higher, 61% versus 6%, in a low-trust environment than in a high-trust environment. In a low-trust environment, we're 10 times more likely to say disagreements are unproductive, I don't feel comfortable disagreeing, or I avoid disagreement altogether. On the flip side, the answers, we can disagree, but it's not personal, we can passionately disagree and remain friends, are 141% higher, so 94% versus 39% in high-trust environments versus low-trust environments. That's the difference. That's how much, how big of a difference does trust make to the ability and the willingness to hold a constructive disagreement. And by the way, what is a constructive disagreement? It, it, it depends on three things as well. Your willingness to be vulnerable, your willingness to provide feedback, and, and I'm talking about the feedback the other person needs to hear, not what you think they want to hear, and receptivity to feedback. Well, vulnerability was 240% higher, or willingness to be vulnerable, 240% higher in a high-trust team versus a low-trust team. The willingness to give the feedback I need to hear rather than the feedback you think I want to hear was 106% higher, more than twice. And receptivity to feedback was 76% higher in high-trust environments. So, one more thing. By the way, there was an interesting study done by a British anthropologist by the name of Robin Dunbar, who correlated the size, the volume of the brain, or a part of the brain, I think it was the uh, frontal cortex, uh, but I'm not 100% sure I'd remember. Um, you can find it in the Book of Trust. But he correlated that with the size of uh, a social network. And what he found was that uh, 
for human beings, that number is 150. So our uh, network would have 150 people at a certain level of, of relationship. But as you go up with the type of relationship, with the intensity, uh, the value of that relationship, the size of the team goes smaller and smaller. And what I and others have found was that the ideal team size is about five to eight people. That's where you can build the highest level of trust. And there are multiple reasons why that level of trust drops as the size of the team goes up. And one of them, uh, for example, is the higher probability of having a team member that nobody trusts. So think about that. Think about vulnerability being important to trust in the team, or I'm sorry, vulnerability is, is important to the level of constructive disagreement. It's driven by trust, but vulnerability is important. And think about that. Think about you're a member of a team with five members. Okay. There are five members. You've been working together for many years. You got to know each other, you know, personally, as well as professionally. Uh, you trust each other. The level of trust is high. What's the level of vulnerability you will allow yourself to have with that team? Pretty high, right? My, my surveys showed that it's going to be 240 times, uh, 240% higher than if you had low level of trust. So almost three and a half times. Then we drop in one other team member that we don't trust. Whether we don't trust them because uh, we haven't spent enough time with them or, or whatever, but we just don't trust them yet. Maybe it's because we'll never trust them because there is a personality incompatibility issue or they don't share our values. Uh, so we're never going to trust them if nobody is willing to change. But I'm, I'm not going to go into that in too much depth right now. What is the level of vulnerability you're going to have when that member is added to your team? Very low. By the way, there was research done on something that's called the bad apple phenomenon. And what it is, is as it turns out, you bring one member into a team that drags the team down with their attitude, with, with you know, their, their moods and whatever. Instead of the team bringing that person up, that person has a tendency to bring the team down. Anyway, I'll summarize the first insight and that is that trust turns a group of creative and productive individuals into a creative and productive team. And specifically, it's because of their ability to hold a constructive disagreement at the highest level. Insight number two, trust is relative. The same behavior that would cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. And that's that's one of the things that, that makes my approach to trust somewhat unique. And that is, I don't look at trust as a list of check boxes that if you can check all of them or as many of them, then you will be trusted. If you can't, you won't be trusted. And there's black or white or good or bad uh, that, that you have to fall into one of them. I believe the trust is relative. I do believe that, you know, the same behavior that would cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. The example I typically give in my uh, in my keynotes and my workshops is this whole Rate My Professors website where students anonymously rate their professors. And, and I give the story of two of my former students who I don't know who they are because this is 
anonymous that went online and rated my class. Now, I only give one class per semester. This was before COVID, so there was no hybrid or, or Zoom. So these were two students that sat in the same classroom at the same time. One of them rated me as five out of five. The other rated me as one out of five. I was obviously being the same person for both of them. How does that happen? Well, because we're different people. We were, we are different in our genetics. We're different in where we were born, where we grew up, uh, our families, our, our friends. You know, our friends do have influence on us. Our environment has influence. We're different in where we work, where we live right now. And that, that affects us. And, and so we are different. Uh, one of the most important components that I have in the relative trust model is uh, the um, personality compatibility. And personality compatibility doesn't necessarily mean that we're the same. It can mean that we're just compatible. So because we're different, you can't assume that the other person is like you or the other person would trust you because of certain behaviors that you have. Several examples include procrastination, for example. You know, t telling the truth, there, there are some things that are, that are absolute and universal, like telling the truth, for example. So can you think of anybody who will lie to you and you will still trust them? Not so much, right? There are some things that are black or white. But think about um, things like procrastination. You know, is it good or is it bad? You know, we typically, I can't tell you how many articles I saw that say how not to procrastinate. Who said that procrastination is a bad thing? When you procrastinate, you can have new ideas. You get more time to think about them. Plans change. Do you want to be the person that uh, that finished the work realizing that um, uh, the schedule has changed or the specifications, the requirements have changed? New information may come up. Procrastination can be a good thing. I am a procrastinator. I'll wait for the last minute. I mean, heck, I'm recording this episode less than 24 hours before it needs to be released. But you know what? I had more ideas because of that. So it's going to be a better episode. But, you know, a procrastinator would probably not have an issue trusting somebody who I would call an early bird, the person who finishes it early. You know, I'm a procrastinator. I don't have a problem trusting someone like that. But someone who's an early bird, someone who stresses over schedules, over deadlines, if I'm with them on the same team and I procrastinate, I wait for the last minute, I know I'm going to finish it on time. But they don't trust me because of that. Because I, I frankly, because I cause them stress. So it's the same behavior. And by the way, another procrastinator would not have an issue with me. So it's the same behavior that would cause one person to trust me could cause another one to distrust me. Same applies to risk taker, risk taking. A risk taker would typically not have an issue trusting somebody who's risk averse, who's trying everything in their power to avoid risk. Uh, you know, I'm a risk taker. My wife, not so much. So, so I look at her as, some, as somebody who grounds me. Now, if it was extreme, I would hold. I would feel that she's holding me back. But I don't feel that she's holding me back. I feel that she's grounding me uh, in somewhat in reality. But think about somebody who's risk averse. What do they think about somebody who's a risk taker? 
They don't trust them because they think that they're irresponsible and that uh, they are reckless. And uh, so it's relative. Somebody who's who has a big picture view versus somebody who's a detailed oriented, somebody who's who has big picture perspective looks at somebody who's or, detail oriented and goes, well, I can't trust them because they don't see the big picture. They only focus on their their little niche there and, and they they don't see they refuse to see the big picture. By the way, the other way around, somebody who's detail-oriented looks at somebody who's big picture and they go, well, they are a mile wide, a knee knee deep. They, They don't understand the details. They don't understand where we live. So we don't trust them. Then the people who are perfectionists versus the people who just want to get it done. You know, they're the perfectionists that say measure twice, cut once. They They never let their products get out of engineering stage. And then there are the people who go get it done. You know, the MVP, minimum viable product. Just get it out there and let's see. They don't trust each other either. So insight number two is that trust is relative. And the same behavior that would cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. Insight number three. My trust in you is the product of my trustfulness, which is my willingness to trust in general, people in general, and your trustworthiness. So for me to trust you, it's not just about your trustworthiness. You know how we talk about that, that uh, for me to trust you, you have to earn my trust, right? It's not enough. Some people are more trustworthy trustful or are willing to trust some people are less willing to trust why is that first because we are the sum of our experiences there are a couple of stories that i tell on on different workshops or keynotes uh that would explain you know some some of the issues that caused me to lose trust in people i'm not at zero but but i probably have a lower level of trustfulness than the average Now, there are several things that happen here that cause that. So we're losing our trustfulness or the trustfulness is reduced because of behaviors of other people. Here's an interesting uh, statistic. This this is coming from Meta, from the the mother company for uh, the parent company for uh, Facebook. This is a direct quote from them. We estimate that fake accounts represent approximately 4 to 5% of our worldwide monthly active users or MAUs on Facebook during the first quarter of 2022. This is a recent statistic, but they estimated about 4 to 5%. So 1 in 20 accounts, Facebook accounts are fake. 1 in 25 are fake. Why do they exist there? They exist there to commit fraud, to influence us, whatever it is. It's not a legitimate, it's not a legal reason. So, you know, if it's one in a million, it's probably not going to affect your trustfulness. But when it's one in 20. So this is fraud. There is a continuous increase in the level of fraud. So, so you, you need to protect yourself. And the way to protect yourself is you lower your trustfulness. How about not fraud? How about just, you know, spam, cold calls, 
calls you didn't expect, you didn't want to get. Uh, you, these are people who are trying to, uh, I'm going to be naive here and say they really want to offer you value. It's just that they're approaching you without you wanting to be approached. And maybe you don't want that value now. That's spam. In 2022, this, this is again, I'm, I'm not coming up. I'm, I'm not, I haven't invented these numbers. I, I found them in, in studies done by others, by companies. In 2022, almost 49% of emails globally were categorized as spam. And just so that you know, we're talking 60 billion spam emails per day. 60 billion, 49%. 36% of that spam content is advertising. So they really are trying to sell me something. It's just that I'm not buying that. Did you know that Gmail blocks 100 million daily spam emails? 42% of email spam attacks are targeted at residents of the U.S. The U.S. houses 7 out of 10 world tops scammers. Not spammers, scammers. This goes back to, to fraud. 9.32% of malicious email campaigns are targeted in at Spain. I don't know why. The U.S. ranks as the leading country in sending spam email. So with all of that happening, how much trust do you have when somebody calls you and offers you actually something that you, you do want, you do need? You know, I, I get a lot of calls from people offering me uh, services that, that I am in the business of buying. I just don't trust them because I know what the per, what, what what the percentages of messages like this that are fraud or spam, or, or they don't share my values, and and I'm not going to go uh, too deep into that right now. But that causes these things, the increase in these things, causes a con continuous decline in trustfulness, and therefore trust because again. Insight number three is that the trust that I have in you, or let's say the trust that you have in me, is the product not only of my trustworthiness. I may be the most trustworthy person in the world, but it's a decline of your, it's a, the product of my trustworthiness and your trustfulness, your willingness to trust people in general, and that is declining. Insight number four, your trustworthiness is made of who you are and what you do when you interact with me. So I, I want to make that distinction and, and I'm going to make that distinction along five dimensions. So the first one is the timing. Who you are, that sets the starting point of trust before an interaction starts. Okay, so... What you know about me, that's who I am, or what I know about you is who you are, that sets the level to how, what is the level of trust. When, when we interact, you and I, because obviously at, at the end, the trust is important because we interact. And so at the beginning of that interaction, the level of trust that is determined at the beginning of that is based on who you are. What do I know about who you are? The what you do components 
those, and this is what you do during the interaction with me, those set the ending point of trust after the interaction ends. So when we start interacting, the level of trust that I have in you is determined by what I know about you. At the end of interaction, it's going to be determined not only by what I know about what I knew about you, but what by how you behave, by what you did during that interaction. Let's talk about the directness of, of that impression. The who you are components of your trustworthiness, they could be transferable. I could know about them through a third party, through another person. Somebody told me. This, this is, you know, like references. Um, whenever somebody wants to sell me something, uh, service or whatever, I ask for references. People I know and I trust that, um, that, that can tell me about you delivering that service. The what you do components... I learn by first-hand impression, by seeing you, by observing you, by interacting with you. They can't be transferable. The evidence, evidence for who you are, who you are relies on mostly objective evidence. So it's like, you know, things that you post on LinkedIn and Facebook and uh, things that I know, reports, certificates, whatever. The what you do components... I rely on, on a lot more subjective perceptions and, and my assumptions of what I see in the interaction. So it's a lot more subjective, a lot less really evidence-based. Consistency, uh, the who you are components, those are the what, what you typically do. They're based on what you typically, what you usually do. So you have to do something for a long period of time for me to say, well, that's part of who you are as opposed just to do just doing it once but the uh, what you do components they rely on what you do right now and i again i have a first hand impression of it and finally the components themselves the the who you are it's the it's made of your competence which is a more objective component more professional more technical Personality compatibility, a lot more subjective, a lot more emotional. And symmetry, which is a lot more situational. And, and the way I interact them, uh, I, the, the way I see the relationship between them, it's not you add them up. It's really the cubic root of the product of all three. The what you do components are first positivity, the no BS and empathy of your attitude during the interaction, and that sets the direction to, during this interaction, am I going to have more trust in you or less trust in you? That depends on your positivity, but it's accelerated by time and intimacy. So again, insight number four is that your trustworthiness is made of who you are and what you do when you interact with me. Insight number five, if you trust someone, and you show them that you trust them, they will behave in a trustworthy way. And I typically end this insight with start with trust. The, the example that I give is when Maya, my older daughter, who's 24 now, but when she was about a year old, 
Um, she she lifted herself from the floor. Instead of crawling, she started standing. Then after standing, she started walking. After walking, she started running. The first time she tried running, she fell down. What is the first thing that she did? And typically when I ask this in a, during a keynote, people tell me that she started crying. No, she didn't. Uh, she got up and kept going. No, she didn't. What's the first thing that she did? The first thing she did was she turned around and she looked at me. And based on my reaction, she would decide whether what happened was bad, she needs to cry, or was not significant, she needs to get up and, and keep going. And, tr- and then I, this is the point where I say that trust works that way too. Because when you show someone that you trust them, when you trust someone and you show them, you need both conditions, and you show them that you trust them, they will behave in a trustworthy way. And unfortunately, it works the other way around too. If you distrust them, you don't show, or and, and you show them that you distrust them, or even if you trust them, you just don't show them that you trust them and they think you don't trust them, they will behave in an untrustworthy way. So what do you do? Obviously, that means that you have an impact on their trustworthiness. Your attitude towards them, whether you trust them or not, affects their trustworthiness. Because, you know, if if you don't show them that you trust them, they're not going to try and be trustworthy. If you show them, on the other hand, that you do trust them, they will feel, and, and they don't believe that they earn that level of trust, they might feel something that, that we call cognitive dissonance, which is not, not a great feeling. It's, it's, you feel that somebody trusts you, you just don't feel that you earned that trust. So what do you do? Well, let's start with the two options. Let's say that the person you, you're considering trusting, uh, their objective level of trustworthiness is 50%. Okay, and you know that. So you have two options, two extreme options. One is you start with 100%. Two is you start with 0%. Well, if you start with 0%, I don't trust you until you earn my trust. Then when I show you this, when I give you that message, when I send you that message, I don't trust you, you're not, you're not going to keep that 50%. You're, it's going to start declining. Obviously, at the same time, I will start learning that, ooh, maybe I can trust you more than zero. So uh, you're going to start earning my trust, but we're going to meet somewhere at about, let's say, 25%, hypothetically. So I should start at 100% because if I start at 100% and I show you that I trust you, you're going to work towards earning that trust. Otherwise, you feel cognitive dissonance. So your level of trustworthiness is actually increasing while, of course, I'm starting to realize that you were not at 100% and I, the level of trust I have in you is starting to decrease because every now and then I have some uh, disappointments. Uh, and we're going to meet at about 75%. Obviously, it's a lot better than 50%, but there is a problem with that. First of all, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for you to trust somebody at 100% when they don't deserve that. It's dangerous because of the consequences, because you trust them with something they, frankly, they should not be trusted with. Now, I'm going to talk about one thing in the next inside, and that is that bad is stronger than good. So let's right now just just take it at face value and say bad is stronger than good, which means that that disappointment that I have in you because, you know, my level of trust in you is higher than the level of trustworthiness that you demonstrated, that disappointment, uh, we can even call it betrayal, is going to have a much bigger negative impact 
than a positive impact of you actually meeting my, my trust in you or earning my trust. So it's dangerous. What I recommend here, you know, I call it start with trust, but I really recommend start with trusting the other person just a little more than the objective level of trustworthiness that they demonstrated to you that they have. So get ahead of them, but not too far ahead of them. So you're going to get them into that cycle of trust and trustworthiness and away from the vicious cycle of distrust and untrustworthiness. So insight number five, if you trust someone and you show them that you trust them, they will behave in a trustworthy way and therefore start with trust. Insight number six, if you eliminate one bad behavior, you will increase your trustworthiness more than if you added one good behavior. This goes back into what I said in, in uh, uh, insight number five, which is bad is much stronger than good. There, there are exercises that I do during my keynotes and workshops uh, on that, but, but there's research that, uh, you know, one of them is the critical positivity ratio or the Losada ratio. They came up with uh, two researchers, uh, uh, Fredrickson and Losada, they came up with the, the Losada ratio, which is 2.9013. If you Google 2.9013, it's going to tell you that uh, we respond 2.90 or let's say three times stronger to something negative than to something positive. Uh, you're going to research that number. You're going to Google that number. You're going to find research articles or articles that disagreed with that finding. By the way, they, they went all the way up to a ratio of 11 to 1. Then there's the prospect theory by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky in 1979 that won uh, at least Kahneman, the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. Tversky, unfortunately, uh, had passed before that. Uh, but they say similar things about investments and how we're driven more by fear from what might go wrong with an investment, which reminds me I need to check my investments today. <laughs> But uh, then, then we are by the uh, uh, the prospects of uh, positive prospects of the, the investment. There is a lot of research, and by the way, in the book of trust, I, I don't think that I put any of that or, or a lot of that in the mini book of trust. But in the book of trust, you can find a lot of this this research that really comes down to something very simple: bad is much stronger than good. We respond much stronger than something negative than to something positive which also explains why we are a lot more likely to post a negative review if we had a negative experience than to post a positive review if we had a positive experience. Uh, how does that apply? If you want to change, if you want to improve, you need to change your behaviors. If you want to be more trusted, you need to change a behavior. And, and I, I like to focus, and this is what my seven-step trust habits process is about. It's about forming a new habit that would change an old behavior. Now, uh, you can say, hey, I want to form a new habit that would create a new positive behavior. Well, if bad is much stronger than good, I would suggest that you would have a biggest impact on your trustworthiness by eliminated, eliminating one bad behavior then by adding one good behavior while keeping a bad behavior that's holding you back from being more trusted still in play. So insight number six, if you eliminate one bad behavior, you will increase your trustworthiness more than if you added one good behavior. 
Insight number seven, and this goes into the uh, uh, forming habits. Insight number seven is really answering the question, how long does it take to form a new habit? And insight seven says, forming a habit takes as long as it takes until it is easier to continue than to stop it, and you don't need extrinsic motivation anymore. So, you know, again, there are stories that I tell about that and how how I kind of stumbled across this uh, after an appearance on the Today Show on NBC back in 2012, where my my insight from there, my, my I call it epiphany, was that changing a behavior is not about knowledge. It's about motivation. We do things because we're motivating to do, motivated to do them. There is intrinsic and there is extrinsic motivation, which, by the way, I talked about a couple of episodes ago, if I remember correctly, in this podcast. My, my whole trust habits framework with, with its seven steps is all about forming a habit. And steps one through six take you through how you identify a relationship and what is it the, the bad behavior you need to eliminate? What's a good behavior that will replace it? Um, how do you make it smart? So specific, measurable, uh, uh, actionable, um, relevant and, and time bound. And uh, then, then how do you make it stick? How do you make it easy? And part of how you make it easy is adding extrinsic motivation. And the question is then, in step seven, is how long do you need to continue and go through this for it to become a habit? And one of the things I tell people is just Google. Right now, go and Google how long does it take to form a habit? And you're going to find answers that are 66 days or 59 days or 21 days. And this is, these are research-based. So which one is it? Is it 66? Is it? By the way, the 66, I think the range there was between 18 and 254, just so that you know. So is it 66? Is it 59? Is it 21? What is it? The answer is neither. It doesn't apply to you. How long does it take for you to start a new habit that would be do two miles on the treadmill every day has nothing to do with creating a new habit of meeting each one of your direct reports for 30 minutes once a week. It, why would it take the same amount of time? It depends on multiple things. It depends on how hard is it for you. It depends on how feasible is it. It depends on uh, how motivated are you. And again, there's an intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. If you're almost intrinsically motivated enough, then you don't need a lot of extrinsic motivation for this to become a habit. The, the analogy I like to use is that of a car engine. Think about a car engine, not electric, <laughs> a car engine that runs on gasoline. It, it really, to get it started, you can fill the, the gas tank with gasoline, the engine is not going to run, still not going to run. Why? Because you need the starter. So the engine is the, the engine running is really the action, the new habit. The gasoline is the intrinsic motivation that keeps the engine running as long as there's still gasoline. The starter is the extrinsic motivator. How long do you keep the starter pressed until the engine un, until you stop? When do you stop holding the, the starter button? Well, 
when the engine is running all by itself. So back from the analogy, how long do you need the extrinsic motivation for or motivator for? Until the intrinsic motivator is enough to keep it running. How long does it take? As long as it takes. Until, really, when does it, when does it stop? When it becomes automatic? When you don't have to think about it? When it's easier to continue than to stop? So initially, it's going to be very easy to stop than to continue. You know, just try, if you don't go on the treadmill every day or go on a walk or on a run every day, try doing it. I mean, it's a lot easier to stop than to continue. Then you're going to get to a point where you did it long enough when if you stop for one day, it's still going to be easier to continue after that day. Then it's going to be, even if you stop for a week, it's still going to be easy to continue than to stop altogether. So insight number seven, forming a habit takes as long as it takes until it is easier to continue than to stop it. And you don't need an extrinsic motivation anymore. This is it. These are the seven insights. They were spread in different episodes at different times, even all the way going two years back. So now I consolidated them for you in just one, and I'll obviously write an article based on that. Next episode, hopefully I will be able to edit it on time. It should be an interview that takes place this time with Melinda Marcus. Melinda Marcus is not only a friend, but she's an expert in influence and body language. And since body language plays a major part in trust, specifically in the area of um, the intimacy that, that helps us build trust or accelerates building trust. We're going to talk about that. I'll, I'll talk about that with Melinda. So I'll, it's not an interview. You know that I don't do interviews. We're going to have a discussion with an expert who knows and who cares. And this is going to be the next episode. It's going to be the last episode for this season. Then we're going to take a week off, as, as usual, and we're going to start season 10. Can you believe it? Season 10. And in season 10, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to, I, I don't know if this is all episodes are going to be like that or only some of them, but I'm going to have a lot of how-to episodes, how-to questions that are related to trust. And if you have a how-to question that's related to trust that you want me to answer on air, just send me an email. Send it to Yoram at YoramSolomon.com. And um, I'll do my best to uh, record an episode. If this is something that's going to interest other people as well, I'm going to record an episode answering that. That's it for today. May trust be with you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, 
or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.